Well, we're here on the, uh, again, the last Lord's Day uh, of the year. Christmas is over. New Year's Eve is tomorrow, and then 2019 arrives. Do you have hopes for this coming year? Do you have hopes that it's going to be better than this year was for you? Do you have a reason to hope that this year is going to be better for you? Well, our passage is about hope, and it's about the hope of the Christian. It's about how that hope came to be in the first place, about what aids in strengthening that hope. And so I'd say particularly if you're someone who maybe you struggle with anxiety, you're one who worries about what this new year is going to bring, maybe you're worried about what the next few years are going to bring for you, then this passage is for you. Now, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that, to Romans 5, 1 through 5. You're also going to find it in that uh, bulletin insert, uh, the, the text that I'm particularly using from the English Standard Version. And again, I invite you to follow along. Now, the first two verses of this passage, is it establishes the basis of the Christian hope. Let me read them again to you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And what's been happening before this time up to Romans 5 for about a chapter and a half? The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, he's been presenting the truth of justification by faith, by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And where before, perhaps many had placed their hope in the law, that is, in in knowing and obeying the law, whether you were a Jew and you had in mind the Mosaic law, whether you're a Gentile and you're just thinking of the inner moral law. Whatever that case, Paul's been teaching that you can never have hope can have no basis of hope, no confidence in hope in that kind of obedience. The law cannot, it never could, be able to achieve anyone's acceptance with God. We're justified before God, not by how well we obey or adhere to the law, but by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that justification, we now can know that we have peace with God. Paul here doesn't mean a, a, just a, a peace of mind, although the result is peace of mind. He's just talking about the peace that has been brokered or mediated by Jesus on the cross. So that we are no longer, and we can understand this, we are no longer under a sentence of condemnation but we have been reconciled to God. So again, peace and reconciliation or or justification, it comes to us through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 1. And verse 2 builds upon that thought. Through Jesus, peace has been established, again, between us and God, but also through Jesus, we have obtained access into an ongoing grace relationship with God. And it's a critical point to understand. I mean, we all know that Jesus, everything I've said so far, 
you already know. We know that Jesus has done that work necessary for us to be saved. We know that we cannot save ourselves by our works, by being morally good enough. And yet many Christians, and indeed I, I know I've suffered from this for many years myself, we kind of get it into our heads. that Now we've been saved, yes, he's done the work, but now I've got to continue to keep up the work that is necessary to have that peace with God, to remain reconciled to him. And so we worry that we're not being good enough to stay in God's good favor. We, we might fret over our sins and our failures to keep the moral law. What does God think of us now? Can, we, can he still keep up that promise to us when we ourselves have failed so much? Well, we ought to be grieved by our sins. But we should never have cause to worry that our sins are going to somehow undo that work that Jesus did because he did it once and for all on the cross. And he will keep his work and keep his promise. And what's being said here in this verse 2 is that we gain access into a state of grace. It's grace that has saved us. It is grace that will keep us. And all of this is through Jesus Christ. That's why it is certain. So if our remaining at peace with God, let's say it did depend upon our performance, well, we would indeed have cause to worry. But it depends on Jesus. How then can we lose that kind of peace? Now the next slide brings us to the main topic. Paul writes, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, it's, it's great. It's wonderful to be at peace with God. It's very comforting to know that, that God does not condemn us, that he's not angry with us, that we do not need to fear him. But the gospel message doesn't end with this message of just justification. It actually goes to something far more wonderful. Because it leads us to glory, to our glory. To understand what Paul means by this, this phrase in this verse here of the, of the glory of God, you'd have to go back to chapter 323. Paul is presenting our dilemma. And what is our dilemma? He says, for all have sinned and they fall short of what? The glory of God. You see, that's the core problem for every person. It is not that, you know, we, we're unfulfilled in life. It's not that we, in some way, you know, just things are going bad for us and we feel miserable. The problem is, of every individual, is that we fall short of the standards of the glorious God. And this glorious God, he demands us to be fully righteous, to be fully in harmony with his glory. So what Paul is doing now is he's assuring those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ that this is what we indeed may look forward to. We who have been covered by the righteousness of Christ, who have gained access into this state of grace, we can expect that someday we ourselves will be glorified 
And so then we will be able to dwell in the presence of God's glory. That, that is the Christian hope. Now someone may be thinking, indeed I remember someone telling me about this one time, they said they want more than hope. They don't like this word hope. They want a guarantee. You know, people place their hope in many things. They place their hope in stock markets and investments. Some people might invest their hopes in, in football teams, maybe, in, maybe even in politicians. And they've learned that hope is not the same thing as certainty. Well, notwithstanding that, even with that in mind, for Paul and all the other New Testament writings, when they speak of hope, it is synonymous. It means the same thing as having a guarantee. Hope for them, first of all, it refers to that final state of hope of glorification. And that particular hope, that anticipation, is guaranteed. It's guaranteed by God the Father, whom, as Paul will go on to say, while we were enemies, that's when he sent his Son to reconcile to us to himself. It is guaranteed by Jesus, who has promised that anyone who belongs to him will never perish, but will have everlasting life. It's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, And is, as we're told in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. Will God fail if he has determined, if he has done the work, if he has personally guaranteed the end result? Will God fail? And so we can keep that good word hope, knowing who it is, that backs up the promise in which we place our hope. Indeed, as our text says, we rejoice in such a hope. Now, that kind of knowledge, it it does make us happy to think about, doesn't it? But actually, there's more to this Greek word than, than just simply taking joy. Literally, what it really means is boast. The one who hopes in Christ does not merely rejoice in their future prospects. They boast about them. Let me give you an illustration to to kind of help understand here. And there might be a few football fans out here. Maybe a few of you out here. And you've got some teams, you've got some teams you just don't like. Okay? They're They're your rivals. And if another team beats them, you're happy. You rejoice in that victory. They got what was coming to them. But there's a difference if your team, your beloved team, beats your arch rival. You don't just rejoice. You boastfully rejoice in the victory. It's not just a team has won. We won. We got the victory. We take it personally, as if we were out there on that field, we're proud of the victory, we own that victory. Well, that's what's happening here. In the same way, our hope of glory, it belongs to us. It is our glory that the Lord has won for us. 
And we can't boast in ourselves winning the victory, but we, we more than gladly boast in our Lord and boast in that victory that He has won and boast in that guarantee that He has made to us. All right, now, so far, so good. Let's just kind of wrap it up real quick here on what's been said. Through Jesus, we've been justified by faith. That justification has reconciled us to God. It keeps us in good standing and even assures our future glory. And for this reason, we can boastfully take joy. But then Paul adds, he adds a strange twist to everything. Look with me in verse 3. Paul says, not only that, not only are we going to rejoice in this hope, boast in it, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only do we joyfully boast in our hope for glory, we joyfully boast in our sufferings. I don't know about you, to me this is a very odd train of thought. Let's see if we can, can follow kind of where he's going with this. There is something for Paul about suffering that in his mind, it's good. And he rejoices in it. Now he goes on to say, in verse 3, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And in verse 4, and endurance produces character. That kind of sounds a little disappointing here for a moment, because this sounds like, this sounds like your dad talking to you, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you've had that thing. Well, suffering's good for you. It builds character. Why? When I was your age, and then it kind of goes on and on, but you don't really hear what he says. Suffering produces endurance. I mean, endurance character. Now, we who are older now, we, we understand this. That's the philosophy, that's the philosophy behind boot camp, I assume. I never went to boot camp, never would want to go. Or maybe you're an athlete and you went to training camp. And what's being taught is, hey, you're, you're being caused to sweat, you're being caused to suffer so that when the really tough times come, you're going to be able to endure. And that's, again, that's a very true lesson. From the hard knock school of life, it's the lesson that we all believe in who have a few decades on us. And no doubt you have done the same thing about boasting about that kind of schooling you had and how it turned out for you. Even with that, I doubt, though, if we're honest, that we rejoiced during those hard knocks. And I doubt that we'd be eager to get more of them. But Paul, in this text, he's not talking about appreciating our past sufferings. He's presenting what it should be like to to experience sufferings in the present. He's actually giving a motivational speech. At least he thinks he is. And he now then presents the final product. And the final product, product is not character. We do not rejoice in our sufferings because they produce good character in us. However good that is, we rejoice because of the hope that is produced. For he says, and character produces hope. Now, I tell you, when I'm working in this, I mean, I'm really doing head-scratching here. 
I mean, we can see how our hope allows us to endure the sufferings and then bear good character. But how does the endurance, how does the character that comes from the sufferings produce hope? Well, let's use the Apostle Paul as a case study. Now, first of all, let's establish that he would be a good case study. Let me, let me list, he actually lists in another letter to 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, the sufferings that he has gone through. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, 39 lashes five times, beaten with rod, with rods three times, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked three times, including being adrift at sea for a night and a day, living in continual danger wherever he went, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, exposed to harsh weather, and daily anxiety for the churches he planted. Okay? So I think we've established. Paul speaks from experience. But we can also conclude, well, I think as well, that at least while he's in getting these things, life was not fun at that time. I just can't believe. Well, Paul is receiving his lashes, and he's getting up to number 28 and 29, and he's thinking, boy, this is the life. This is great. And he outright admits that he, to anxiety, to sleepless nights, worrying about his church plants. Yet even with all of that, Paul does not come off, he never comes off as a morose, kind of having a morose personality. You don't get from Paul that life is a bitter cross to bear. And the only reason he's actually listing off these afflictions is because the Corinth church at that time, I mean, they're, they're goading him, needling him, because they don't think he's being, more, he's being enough like an apostle. He needs to be more apostle-like. And he makes very clear. He says, I feel like a fool listing these things. Now, Paul's not adverse to talking about his sufferings. But he doesn't do so as kind of a woe-be-gone. You know, he, what he really does is what he does now. He speaks of his sufferings in, in the context of hope and a boastful joy. Somehow, Paul's sufferings encouraged him. So let's, let's try to look at the reasons that Paul himself gives. And he gives it here in this text, but also in other places. For Paul, one thing, Paul felt the honor when he was suffering. He felt the honor of sharing in the sufferings of his Savior. So he writes in Philippians, in chapter 3, For Christ's sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To share the sufferings of Christ was a distinct joy and an honor for Paul. And for that matter, it was the same way with the other apostles. You know, when Jesus' disciples received their first persecution by beating, their reaction was this. It's noted in Acts 5. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, it's that same word, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a thing of honor for them, a blessing for them. Now, we can actually understand this. If we deeply love someone, to suffer for that person, however, however unpleasant the pain may be, we feel honored. We might even feel a joy that we had this opportunity to prove our love. And that's the way it was with Paul and with the rest of the apostles. Now, there was something else that Paul saw in this. Paul felt that his sufferings, they served a purpose. They served the people and the church of his Savior. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, this is this chapter, that moving passage of saying we have these treasures in, in jars of clay, and then describes the sufferings in his companion's face, and he notes this. He says, for it was all for your sake. This is to the people in Corinth. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul's sufferings occurred in that process of spreading the grace of God. And indeed, as he would have understood it, his very sufferings demonstrated, it gave him opportunity to demonstrate the hope and comfort that a believer has in Christ. And so in that way, it serves to spread the good news of God's grace. And there's something else, and this is kind of very unique, or again, what we would consider an odd thing for Paul to say or to feel about his sufferings. But he felt that his sufferings continued the suffering ministry of his Savior. Paul writes in Colossians in chapter 1. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And that's an odd saying to kind of get a hold of. I mean, surely Paul isn't thinking that Christ... Well, he didn't do enough suffering to redeem us, and now Paul's got to finish it up. What Paul has in mind is is probably something like this. The sufferings of our Savior continue in his followers. Paul might be thinking, he probably is thinking specifically of himself, but it's the same principle that applies to all of us who claim Jesus as our Savior and Lord particularly if we are consciously trying to advance the kingdom, the gospel work. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone would come after me, what needs to be done? Basically to suffer. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Think of it this way. Jesus died on that cross completed his sufferings, he's buried, then what happens? He ascends into heaven. Now, how does the work continue on? How is he able to extend the redemption to the laws? Well, it's taken up by us. And that work involves the same type of sufferings he went through. 
And Paul understood that, and indeed he embraced his sufferings. Because it meant for him that he, Paul, had that high privilege to carry on Christ's ministry. Now here's something else that Paul felt about his sufferings. He thought that somehow in his sufferings, they were somehow preparing him for glory. We go back to that chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, he has listed all of these difficult things and and afflictions and tough times that he's gone through. He has told them that it's all for your sake. But then he adds this. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Something's going on inside of him. And then he says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Sufferings can't compare to the glory that these very sufferings are preparing me for. And that brings us round circle back to what he had talked about in our passage of the hope of the glory of God. It starts to fit now as we think about it. The Christian hope is what? To be brought into the glory of God. And the Christian sufferings are somehow preparing us for that glory. That is why Paul says that we joyfully boast, not only in that hope that is before us, but we joyfully boast in our sufferings that are preparing us for that glory. And then there's one other thing that he mentions here for his reasoning for for embracing his sufferings. In his sufferings, he he feels the comforting love of his Savior. Paul finishes our passage here in verse 5. Look at it with me. And he says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You know, we suffer. Some people may be impressed by our suffering. Probably most people, when they look at our sufferings, they scoff at them. They might even say to us that these sufferings indicate that our God has abandoned us. That we cannot depend upon Him. Well, suffering can make us feel that way. And there are some who will probably have even left their faith because of it. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what has always intrigued me as a pastor. It is how suffering, it doesn't cause most believers to, uh, to abandon their faith. And indeed, for most of them, they find their faith only growing stronger. Now, I will have folks come to me for counsel, and they're going through a hard time. They want some counsel on how to deal with the afflictions they face. And I tell you, quite honestly, most of the time, or a lot of the time, I don't have an answer for them. I mean, they're telling me their troubles, and I'm getting, I'm getting depressed and depressed, and I don't know what kind of hope to give them. So I'll ask them a question. I'll say, given all that you've gone through, why have you not left your faith in God? 
They'll pause. They'll think. And then they become eloquent as they speak of the love of God who has shown such love to them in Jesus Christ. How could? How could they leave their faith when they think of the love and, and all that has been given to them? And I tell you, as often as not, I can tell you more so when I go to visit believers who may be in the hospital and they're suffering with illness. And I go there to, to minister to them. More times than not, they end up trying to, to minister to me about the love of their Heavenly Father, about just how all the more they, they have their faith and, and their hope in Him. And what's happening is this verse is explaining why that happens. It happens because the Holy Spirit is at work pouring God's love into our hearts. You know, at the end of this chapter, Paul will make a statement. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, he could have said something like this now. Where sufferings increase, God's comforting love abounds all the more. You know, there's only once in history where God has withheld comfort to his own. And that was at the cross when his son bore our sins and he turned his face away as we sang about earlier this morning. Jesus bore our sins so that we would never experience the abandonment of God, but instead find comfort in our deepest affliction. You know, when I look at this passage, and indeed, and you just read throughout the New Testament, which speaks a lot about sufferings, it strikes me how alien their world was, or it was to us today. How alien that the early believers in the early church experienced life. I mean, we talk about persecution. And we may be rightfully be concerned at the trend that our society is heading in in this, in this post-Christian era. Okay. But for the New Testament church, for the apostles, for the, the common Christian, suffering it was just a way of life. There was the suffering of poverty, the daily danger and hardship that we, for the most part, are protected from. The illnesses, the, the injuries that could not be treated. We, today, we live in a post-Christian society. And what that means is Christianity is losing its influence. That's obvious. But still, there is influence of its values that are still in our society. The early church never had that. It, came, it was lived in a pre-Christian society. It was always the minority. It was always suspect. It was always struggling just for the right to exist. And we simply cannot fully grasp the hardships of these brothers and sisters to whom Paul and Peter and John wrote their letters unless, if we will take the time to look at what's going on in the churches in hostile countries. But here, here is what the apostles wrote about sufferings. They used these times to encourage their people 
Not merely to, to bear up under their sufferings, to have a stiff lip, but to rejoice in them, to embrace them. I tell you, I, I don't know if I've ever had when someone has come and poured out their afflictions to me that I've ever said to boastfully rejoice in what you're going through. And when I read these, these things that the, the apostles write, it makes me realize how little I grasp their perspective on life. Somehow, they were able to look beyond this life to glory. Listen again to Paul. For this light, momentary affliction that he causes his lifelong afflictions is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Even comp- the glory that he sees and feels... Afflictions can't compare to that. Listen to Peter, who writes, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to John. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes, John is saying, Everyone who thus hopes is able to joyfully boast in their sufferings because their eyes, because their hearts are fixed on the eternal glory that awaits them. Paul once told the Philippians that he had learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I wonder, do you think this hope was his secret? My prayer for for you and for myself, that as we begin a new year, that we will learn this secret of the hope of glory. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray for this. Lift up our eyes. Lift up our hearts to seeing that which is permanent, that which is forever, which is our eternal glory. Our Father, as we go through the struggles and the trials of this life, cause us to keep lifting up our eyes above the clouds to see our Lord Jesus Christ, to see where all of this is taking us, so that all the more that we might, before this world, embrace whatever comes our way and show forth the joy that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.